Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. If you've walked through almost any city in the United States, you've likely come upon tent encampments, outdoor places where people without shelter set up tents that they live in. Now, cities are often under pressure to clear these encampments, particularly when they view them as a health or safety risk, or if they interfere with other uses of the space. But what's the experience of the people who live in these encampments when they're cleared? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. In January 2022, the city of Boston cleared the Mass and Cast Tent Encampment, consisting of more than 75 tents and housing more than 200 people. Most residents of the encampment were offered transitional housing with some additional social supports. I'm here today with Mike Mayer, a medical student at Stanford University, former research assistant at the Boston University School of Medicine, who, along with co-authors, published a paper in the February 2024 issue of Health Affairs examining the experiences of former residents of the Mass and Cass encampment in Boston. Based on interviews, they gained really interesting insights into the harms of encampment clearing and the steps that can be taken to reduce those harms. We'll discuss these findings in today's episode. Mr. Mayor, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this important topic. So let's just start with the basics. As I said, you know, we've all seen tent encampments, but I'm not sure most of us know much about them. What really are they? Why do people live in them? And how many people are living in these sorts of encampments? So tent encampment is kind of a broad term. They can be small. They can be large. Essentially, they're communities of people experiencing homelessness who are congregating together and frequently living in tents. They may be congregating for a variety of reasons. They might be congregating for safety. That's fairly common. For convenience, for access to things like drugs or social services or health care. And a lot of times, they might just have nowhere else to go. A lot of times encampments have a lot of advantages to traditional shelters. We can get into that later in this uh, episode, but traditional shelters often limit autonomy. They might have minimal privacy. They might have nowhere to sort of keep belonging safe. There might be some difficult social dynamics at play. And so a lot of times, especially for the folks that we talk to, encampments were a preferable alternative to traditional shelters. Now, in terms of size, they vary a lot. Um, Some can be small, just sort of a handful of people, and others can be quite large, hundreds of people. And so in this case, we were primarily investigating a large encampment of um, actually 200 to 300 people. So I live uh, in the Washington, D.C. area and certainly see the encampments, and I also hear conversations about clearing them and We should just do a sweep, as they say. So can you talk to me a little bit about what happens when there is a sweep and why do they happen? How often do they happen? Why is it a good idea? Why a bad idea? I know we'll get more into this, but just set the stage for me, if you would. Of course. Um, So encampment sweeps or encampment clearings are fairly common. Often encampments are a very visible display of homelessness or poverty or drug use. They can be sites of violence or illegal activity. And as a result, they often pose concerns to residents or businesses in certain neighborhoods. 
And so encampment clearings often occur when the city is trying to address some of these concerns. They might be trying to sort of clean up the area for public health reasons. They might be simply trying to enforce a no-tent policy. They might be cracking down on certain illegal activities like using drugs. And often there's a fair amount of pressure from businesses and from residents to sort of try to clear the area. So I can imagine there's quite a range of how the sweeps are conducted. If it's really pressure, you could imagine all of the attention is just on clearing the space. But you also mentioned it as an opportunity maybe to address problems. So your study occurs in a, around a specific event at Mass and Cass in Boston. I know you worked with the homeless population there, so maybe you could say a little bit about this specific instance, what motivated it, and maybe how it was different from what we might see happen elsewhere. On the one hand, this encampment clearing was somewhat typical, but on the other hand, it was really completely unique. The Mass and Cass encampment is in Boston's South End, right on the border of the South End in Roxbury. It's sort of one of the hearts of the opioid overdose epidemic in New England. And this encampment in general was really the largest in the region, um, 200 to 300 people. It's existed since about 2014 after a sort of major closure of uh, services and shelters nearby. A lot of people congregated in the area. It's an area that has a jail right nearby, a lot of homeless services, methadone clinics, shelters. There's just a lot, there's a high density of homelessness services all in this one region. It also happens to be sort of relatively convenient access to drugs. And so as a result of all of these things, a lot of people congregate in one area. The encampment at Mass and Cass in particular has experienced clearings before, This was the biggest one that had happened in several years. What um, the idea was here was in previous encampment clearings at Mass and Cass, people were just sort of cleared with no alternative options. Perhaps they were offered access to shelters, but there really weren't many options provided to folks. They just sort of had to disperse, go somewhere else. And what we've found is that when people experience these encampment clearings with no alternative offers of services or placement, they often sort of lose contact with their care teams. Um, They may be placed in more precarious living situations. They lose some of the safety network that we will probably talk about later today that is sort of inherent to encampment living. In this case, individuals were offered harm reduction housing. So that's a, a new form of transitional housing that the city, state, and some homeless service providers collaborated on. It was essentially repurposed hotels, repurposed shelters, repurposed healthcare facilities to create these transitional housing programs whose model incorporated harm reduction. That looked like a lot of different things. It meant there were services on site. It meant that there was increased autonomy as compared to traditional shelters. People had their own rooms. People could come and go as they pleased. People were checked on frequently by harm reduction specialists. One of the sites in particular had a 24-7 clinic for people who were over-intoxicated to come stay and receive care. They were really a unique model. And so most people in the encampment were offered access to these sites Now, unfortunately, not everyone in the encampment was offered access to the site. And so that was really where our project began. We wanted to understand, one, what was the impact of the encampment clearing on people's sort of health and safety, which was the stated goal of the encampment clearing to promote safety, to promote public health. 
but then simultaneously to investigate this really novel type of housing, this harm reduction approach to housing, um, and see how folks do moving directly from an encampment setting. So I'm really eager to get into what you learned, but before we do that, I just want to ask one last sort of framing question, which is data collection. You're talking about a very difficult population to interact with if you haven't built trust and don't have a pre-existing relationship. So say a little bit about the study itself here. So this was a qualitative study. We had some relatively close relationships with the homeless service agencies that were providing care in a few different settings. And we sort of used these to try to be able to exist in these spaces and build relationships with people that we were interviewing enough that they would feel comfortable opening up with us. So um, one of our main sites of recruitment was a day center at the Mass and Cass area where encampment residents, either people who were currently living there or previously lived there, frequently visited for services or to sort of see other people in the community or just to spend the day in a warm and safe place. We would um, start talking with people there. We would ask if they were living in the encampment previously, if they experienced the sweep. And if they had experienced that clearing, then we would invite them to come speak with us privately, and we would have you know, hour-long conversations about their experiences. From that, we actually saw there was a part of the story that we didn't realize originally, and that was really this split of experiences of people who experienced the encampment clearing and were just displaced to other parts of the city versus people who were displaced but were offered a spot in this transitional harm reduction housing. And so from there, we actually recruited people in the lobby of one of these harm reduction housing sites. Same thing, just sort of asking about their experiences and talking with them for an hour or so. Well, it's an incredible investment in trying to understand how this uh, played out and how it affected the people. It was, as you say, designed to help. Uh, Well, we should turn to what you learned, but I think actually we're at a place where it'd be good to take a quick break. We'll do that. And when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss what you learned from your study. And we're back. I'm speaking with Mike Mayer about the effects of clearing tent encampments and harm reduction transitional housing being offered to those uh, in this particular instance at Mass and Cass in Boston from 2022. We've spent most of our time thus far setting the stage, but it, it just seems so important to me to understand the context for these results. But let's move directly now into the findings. So basically, as you have already alluded to, there are some significant potential harms for people associated with a clearing uh, in and of itself. And then there's the possibility to address those in how you go about the clearing, particularly the intervention you've described here around harm uh, reduction, transitional housing. Let's start with the displacement side of this. I suspect that's been studied before, but the nuance you offer here, and particularly, of course, as a health policy journal, we're interested in the effects on people in many ways, but we're particularly interested in the effects on their health and their access to sort of basic needs that would be related to health, safety, and and access to services. What did you find specifically about the implications of displacement uh, for people cleared from attendant encampment? I always feel like whenever I'm talking about tent encampments, we have to be talking with a little bit of nuance. Tent encampments in general 
can be concerning places in terms of public health and safety. A lot of the things that originally motivate encampment clearings can be for good reasons, trying to improve safety, trying to improve public health. And if you sit down and talk with anyone who's living in, at least in our case, in the Mass and Cass encampment, they will openly share with you a lot of their concerns. They'll say the encampment isn't safe, especially not safe for women. There's assaults. There's a lot of drug use. It can be very triggering for people. There can be fires. There can be some legitimate concerns. With that being said, the encampments can also provide benefits to just sort of unsheltered, isolated, unsheltered living, or even to traditional shelter models. And so that's where we're talking with a little bit of nuance. It's not that when we maybe are presenting some of these findings where we believe people should live in tent encampments, no one should have to live in a tent encampment, but they do offer some benefits compared to the alternative. And those alternatives is what we really saw with this just sort of sudden displacement from the encampment. A lot of people were isolated. We broke our themes down into sort of health themes versus safety themes. In terms of health, this sudden loss of your belongings led to a lot of mental health exacerbations, a lot of stress, and sort of separation from care that they may have been receiving in the encampment setting. If you put yourself in the shoes of someone who's been living in an encampment, living in their own tent, in their own spot for maybe several years, there's some level of consistency. That tent is really their home. They have a lot of belongings in the tent. They have neighbors. They have community. And most importantly, they have some sort of stability. When that's taken away all at once, it can be enormously stressful. They're only able to, to bring with them sort of what they can carry. They're sort of forced to give up a lot of their belongings. They might lose their tent. That's sort of their home. That's their protection from the elements. That can be extremely stressful. And then it's sort of the experience of being cleared, people shared, was just one of a lot of experiences related to dehumanization on the hands of city officials and the public in general. People experiencing unsheltered homelessness have been failed at so many turns by the healthcare system, by the shelter system, by other sort of forms of social safety nets. And having your belongings stripped, being kicked out, being told you're not able to live where you're currently living, and having no realistic other option, having nowhere else to go, can just be enormously frustrating. A lot of people experienced a lot of anger and fear anxiety. We saw this manifest. Some individuals shared that they felt suicidal or had to actually get a psychiatric hospitalization because they felt so scared and didn't know what to do. Other people shared that they stopped taking their medications because they sort of felt like, what's the point? People stopped showing up to their methadone clinic either because geographically they were now too far to go in the morning or they just sort of lost their motivation for it. In terms of substance use, a number of people told us they just started using a lot more because they needed a way to cope with the stress they were experiencing. And then even in terms of things like infectious diseases or conditions where or certain organizations were providing directly observed therapies, a lot of these care teams, these outreach-based medical teams, actually rely on finding people every day, day in and day out, providing their medications, things like that. The encampment setting is sort of a consistent setting. You can reliably find people. 
But when people are dispersed all over, you know, it became a little bit harder for care teams to find folks. And the participants shared that they lost touch with those teams in some cases and couldn't take medications for, say, hepatitis C or HIV or any other medications. Last, I'll just quickly talk about substance use and overdose concerns. There actually can be a little bit of a safety benefit of living in congregate settings when we're talking about opioid overdoses. If you have an overdose in the encampment setting, odds are pretty high that someone might notice and can respond or at least call the medical team over to respond. When folks are dispersed around the city, it's a lot less likely that people are either going to notice an overdose or if the general public sees someone who is on the ground, they might not know to respond or how to respond. I'll just quickly touch on the safety side as well. The safety concerns were really commonly brought up. We talked a little bit before about the encampment social structure, the stability that encampments can provide. When that was gotten rid of by the encampment clearing, a lot of people brought up that that led to a large influx of people to the area. There was now sort of uncertain social status. There wasn't this stable, this tent is here, this tent is here, we know my neighbors, we know the community. Instead, there was an influx of new faces, people sort of fighting for social status and almost like territory in certain parts of the area. Consistently, people brought up that the area had become significantly less safe, especially for women. Those networks of people looking out for one another, which was especially important for women and transgender individuals we spoke with, they disappeared from the encampment clearing. And so a lot of people brought up that their safety concerns were worse than ever following the displacement and the disruption of the encampment. So what you describe is that although, as you say, clearly this is not the preferred mode of housing for anyone, it has certain benefits that are easy to disrupt and when disrupted can have profound effects on basic human needs, including health directly as well as indirectly through things like safety and the like. You mentioned it earlier that this was a very different kind of clearing than in the past because of the transitional harm reduction housing. So let's flip to that side. What did you learn about whether participation in that set of services that aren't typically available, whether they helped buffer against some of these harms of displacement that you just described. So I have to say, even I was shocked by how positive the experience was at these transitional harm reduction housing sites. I've been working in this field for four and a half years, and I uh, have a certain level of healthy skepticism of novel interventions. But truthfully, This intervention seemed to work so well, and the experiences that people spoke to us about were so positive that we just had to dive further and were really excited about sharing the results. In general, the sort of obvious benefit was housing improved a little bit of everything. When people had four walls, a room to call their own, everything got better. Mental health um, symptoms got better. People were able to rest. People had consistent access to food. People reported using substances less, feeling like they no longer needed to use drugs to cope as much. And having the consistency of a room meant that steps on sort of the social domains of their life, they were able to make a lot more progress. So A lot of people said that because they had a consistent room, their doctor actually could come directly to their door rather than having to have an outreach team kind of spend a whole day looking for folks. They could just sort of follow up relatively quickly. 
There were case managers on site who could start to work on a lot of things like housing or connection to other services. A lot of people started taking medications for their addiction. A lot of people we spoke with actually had started working, which was quite recent. I mean, they were living in an encampment setting only maybe weeks or a couple months prior, and already they were excited to be you know, working part-time jobs and looking to expand that. There was a lot about the sort of structure of transitional harm reduction housing that I think you know, we could learn from and hopefully can replicate around the country in the future. Well, that's really uh, an impressive set of findings, and I can just tell in your voice, as you say, how unexpected it was and how consistently positive the message was. So this, of course, uh, is probably an easy question to answer, uh, to ask and an almost impossible one to answer. But given that positive experience, you know, let's say we've published the paper and people listen to this podcast and say, let's do that. What does it really take to make that approach to clearing encampments uh, more the norm rather than a much less supportive one that creates all the harms we discussed a little while ago without really many of the benefits. You know, one of the main takeaways is encampment clearings as we know them today generally don't work. This sudden disruption of encampments appeared to be harmful for so many reasons, health reasons, safety reasons, this disruption of social stability, this influx of people. It seemed to make virtually everything worse. I think that future interventions that simultaneously provided things like harm reduction housing, rather than abruptly disrupting encampments themselves, are likely to serve the needs of people experiencing homelessness encampments much better. At least it'll give people an opportunity to sort of maintain the stability and safety inherent in encampment structures while providing this alternative route of transitional harm reduction housing. I think the harm reduction housing itself Unfortunately, there's not a lot of models that adequately reimburse the costs of running a harm reduction housing site. There's actually a fantastic paper that recently came out by um, Miriam Komoromi, who is actually one of the directors of this site, explaining sort of the structure of the site and then also some of the limitations in terms of sort of financial reimbursement. What we found was after about a one to two year period where we had emergency COVID funding that could be funneled into funding these sites. Once that ran out, the site had to close. And so I'm sort of in my ideal future, if there was federal investment that could simultaneously fund sites like this all around the country and sort of cities all around the country, I think we might be able to see you know, a real impact for people experiencing unsheltered homelessness. You know, I've heard before, and you reiterated that uh, traditional shelters just don't meet the needs of a lot of people, and that's why they end up in tenant encampments, even though those aren't ideal either. Given what you just described about the significant spending it would take to build out the capacity around harm reduction, transitional housing, we do have a shelter infrastructure. Are there changes out of this work and others that other work you're aware of that you think maybe would be less expensive, less disruptive? Probably wouldn't have quite as many positive effects as what you found. But are there things we could do to tweak the traditional shelter model so that we could provide a viable alternative to more people? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a part of our investigation that surprised us as well. 
the amount of suggestions that people had about how to improve the shelter system, how to make it so that encampments were not just sort of the only option for folks. A few different domains came up when we were talking about the shelter system with folks. The first that comes to mind is autonomy. Shelters themselves just sort of inherently limit autonomy in certain ways. Folks have to show up at a certain time. They're not allowed to leave, come and go as they please. So when people, for example, are struggling with an addiction to, let's say, fentanyl, in order to prevent going into withdrawal, they have to use maybe every three to four hours or so. In shelters, you're not allowed to bring um, safe use supplies in, you're not allowed to bring substances in. And so what that means is if someone were to be staying in a shelter with addiction to fentanyl, they're going to have to leave about three to four hours after they enter. And if there's a policy that restricts that, then of course there's sort of no other option except to live unsheltered. A few other things that came up were some of the complicated social dynamics in shelters. Often shelters were these large congregate environments. They could be loud, they could be stressful, they could be very triggering for people with multifaceted trauma, especially trauma related to incarceration. There were sometimes really difficult interactions with staff. There was stealing that people felt wasn't enforced. That was an ongoing challenge. There's also just the sort of the stability piece that encampments provided that shelters didn't. Having your own place to go at night, having your tent where you can keep your belongings safe, that was a big deal to people. That stability is important. And with shelters where you're in a new bed every time, you're not even sure if you're going to get a bed, it can just be really chaotic. And not knowing where you're going to keep your stuff safe, only being able to have you know what you can sort of carry and look after, that was really challenging and stressful for folks. So if shelters were able to address those, if shelters were able to you know, provide better autonomy, better privacy, a sort of harm reduction approach, letting people come and go as they needed, perhaps letting people keep their belongings locked off site, I mean, you know, I think that could really improve shelter utilization. Well, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for conducting this work and discussing it with me. You've offered a roadmap, obviously one that requires resources, but a roadmap for a really different approach to a problem and a set of challenges that are we're experiencing around the country. And as I noted earlier, the excitement in your voice, having worked in the field of how much better this model worked than uh, other ones that have made you appropriately skeptical, gives me some real en- enthusiasm as well that there are ways to do much better. And obviously, the complete solution to the housing issues that lead to homelessness is far beyond the reach of this paper or the suggestions you made. But anything we could do to improve the lives and the possible life trajectory of people who are finding themselves in tent encampments as really the, the last option after so many others uh, is, is worth our attention. So I appreciate the work that went into the study, the explanation today, your commitment to the field. Uh, thank you for being my guest today on A Health Policy. Thank you so much, Alan. I'm happy to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy.